Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice. Today I get to share with you a chat with Chris Wallace Crabb. It's possible that Chris needs no introduction, but if you're not familiar with his work, Chris Wallace Crabb has been publishing since 1955, and since then he's published many collections of poetry and won a great many awards and prizes for his work. He was a Harkness Fellow at Yale, Professor of Australian Studies at Harvard, and a visiting professor at the University of Venice. He was also the founding director of the Australian Centre at the University of Melbourne, and he served there from 1989 to 94, and returned as Professor Emeritus in 1998. In 2011, he was appointed a member of the Order of Australia. Chris has published a new book recently. In August last year, he published a collection called Rondo, which deals with some wide-ranging themes, including his own family history, that history as it intersects with various world wars. And in this conversation, we take a deep dive into some of the poems. Chris reads some of those for us, which is really lovely to hear. And we talk about the way that his work has been characterized as being a mix of everyday and elevated language, how that works in this collection in particular. And he also talks a little bit about how poems actually come to him, his writing process itself. Towards the end of the chat, we get into Chris's experiences at Yale. And no spoilers, but he talks about some of the poets that he got to meet while he was over there. And there are some very interesting names on that list. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris Wallace Crabb. Thank you so much again for having me over. As you said, just fresh off the flight back from the UK. What what were you up to over there? I gave poetry readings in Manchester and London and one for the BBC. Oh, brilliant. And I caught up with um, friends and former students here and there and fellow poets. Oh, lovely. Was that in support of the new book, sort of like a book tour? Uh, Partly, yes. Mm. Yep. Certainly the uh, Manchester and um, London readings were connected with that. Mm. Mm. Um, Well, we both have a copy here of Rondo, and I thought I might start by asking you to talk a little bit about the title, because I know um, the word Rondo from my piano lessons when I was a little girl. Oh, right, yes. And Rondo is something that at one time in my life I could play. Right. Um, and I was wondering about the choice of title and how it reflects the the organisational structure of the book, perhaps? Or Well, it particularly reflects the fact <clears throat> that after a certain stage in life, mm. you're going through similar experiences or what feel like similar experiences oh. and confronting the same kinds of issues of age, relations, children, and so on. Everything is moving forward and becoming different and at the same time being versions mm. of the same old paradoxes about being human. So repetition of the theme just in a yes. different way. Mm. Yes. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's really beautiful. You, I mean, you can never repeat it exactly because time has gone on and you're a partly changed person. Mm. Perhaps partly decayed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that feeling of having to learn the same lessons in some ways. There's a bit of that, yeah. Mm. Yes. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, As in, the, <coughs> there's some old American song that contains the line, here comes Cousin Joe, who sings the same song, only louder. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get it this time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, there are a f- more than a few poems in the book that are quite reflective, looking back not only on your own history, but family history as well. That's right, that's true. Um, and I was wondering about the work of doing that. Is that something that you... Because I, I know it's not wouldn't be the first time that you've written about those themes, but looking at those things from a new angle now, That's right. And, yeah. Uh, the earliest versions are smaller and further away. Yeah. Uh, the angle, you bring different things to bear. Mm. Um, things in society and in culture, in your own work that you hoped would be wonderfully different, a less wonderfully different. They're just done by poor old humans it once again. Yeah, just repeating the same theme. More or less. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if you... Oh, sorry, I'll wait until you've... Uh... No, I'll try to phrase my go question ahead with well. the question in a moment. Yeah. So I wondered, I wondered if you would explain that a little bit for people who haven't yet read the book, those ideas of family history that you're investigating and it's not just family history but it's um the history of australian involvement in uh various wars and then how that intersects with your own family yes and uh, that issue of australia's involvement in various wars is strongly underlined for me by the fact that my father was unlucky enough to be of an age where he had to serve in both wars Right. And the, that's a very narrow band that would uh, <clears throat> make you old enough for, to get into World War One, mm. and still young enough to be sent off to India. Mm. Well, <clears throat> Malaya first, then Burma, then India for World War Two. Mm. And he was a journalist, wasn't he? He was a journalist, mm. <clears throat> mainly with the Melbourne Herald, before mm. that with Sunraysia Daily in uh, Mildura. Mm. Because after World War One, having served... He was uh, eligible for a um, returned soldier's block, uh, and we got a block a block of land to grow grapes and things on. Oh, okay. And lived for a while in Mildura. So there was some small benefit to being in that. That's right. Band. Wow, and um, there was an uncle as well, wasn't there? Who Uncle Keith was yes. killed. Dad's brother was killed in the First World War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much, yeah, there's so much in that, so much family history intersecting, yes. And my my, uh, aunt, a fierce little woman, is recorded as saying to dad when he was 16 or something like that, when are you going over to avenge the death of your brother? Mm. That is... That's a tough thing to say to somebody. Is it ever? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he was young, He was sufficiently young. He was born in 1900 mm. not to have to do overseas service um, in the First War, mm. but was overseas for all but a fortnight of World War Two. Wow. Mm. So there are there are these these poems in here. Um, the one probably the most obvious one would be Lord of Hosts. 
Right. And then the following poem, which is called Grandpa's Boys. Yep. Um, is there one of those that you'd like to read, perhaps? I would quite like to read... Um, either. Either. Great. Which would you suggest? Um, I think... Maybe Grandpa's Boys. I mean, okay. both, I like them both a lot, but Grandpa's Boys is perhaps more... I mean, it covers everything that we just talked about. It covers so. a lot we've talked about, yeah. and it gives a sense of the family structure that I come out from. I mm. come out from. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, a Scottish family in Australia. Yep. Uh, Zelig is a figure in a... Uh, is the title figure in a movie. Yes. Uh, a character who manages to survive all sorts of things and comes out all right again and again and again and again. Um, Hutton's mm. Hams, the Dardanelles are, of course, Gallipoli. Uttar Pradesh is in India. Shall I read it? That would be great, thank you. Grandpa's boys. Garrulous and footloose, a little chancer. He had once been Scottish, even wrote about it. She had sailed out here from Cork, with bloodthirsty blood in her girlish veins. He lived here and there, much like the later Zelig, but she hooked him in Adelaide. They inhabited three or four cities, extending his reinventions pretty well. The boys were got, briefly, into good schools, till the fees were called for. Their olive sister became a teacher, first of all, while Keith worked clerking for Hutton's hams, till a large war came rolling along. So he put down his steel pen and sailed off to pyramidal Egypt. Nobody knows what his father was thinking by now. The genuine diamond mine, only a memory. Keith was shipped into cruel Dardanelles to die in bloody dust a hundred years ago. Dad was meant to avenge him, their mother swore. She was more or less tribal for a tiny lass, but Kenneth survived to rollick and sweat through another war, this time in Asia, once apparently dead. Burma had fed him only shrapnel wounds, and after that he took up his own steel pen, typewriter rather, camera could be his choice. Based for years in Uttar Pradesh, he managed to overfly the continent between architecture and propaganda, his life rich as curried goat, fragile as pale blue aerograms. Through all that global Arcus Malacus, my father strutted in warm style, devoted to young me, but nimble and garrulous like his old man. Thank you. Yeah, that, that covers a huge range of ground, that poem. So much history in that. Took a while to write. <laughs> How long do you remember when you started it and when you finished it? I think I got the first three or four, or no, maybe even down to Gallipoli. Um, but I didn't yet see how the poem was going to end. Mm. Is that a fairly common thing for poems to arrive in order? It is for me pretty common, yes. Wow. And also for them to arrive only a third there or a quarter there or... Um, I see the beginning, I see the shape that the stanzas might be going to have, mm. write a certain amount and come to a stop. And rather than trudging on dully, um, I put them aside for a bit. 
Mm. Just wait. Wait. Mm. I read somewhere that this collection, Rondo, is representative of about 10 years worth of poems. I, did, I think that's right? true. Mm-hmm. Is it basically all the poems that you'd written in that time or were there a lot that didn't make it in? Some swam in from uh, long before and been sitting aside and hadn't found anywhere to lie down. (laughs) That's great. I love that idea of, I mean, the way that you speak about poems, I think is, I feel very close to, they, they do feel like beings that will they are things that show up and they do need to find places to rest. That's and, right. Yeah. And some of them are called up by different different things, like after 400 years for a quarter centenary and um, mm. classical Bali and song and Red Red Rose are all sort of song-like poems. Yes, yeah. And so on. Yes, I was going to ask about that. There's um, There's something that comes up a lot in descriptions of your work and interviews with you and that's this classification of of your work as you're able to use very daily language Mm -hmm. and then more um uh, i don't really know how to put it but more elevated language. elevated that's the word i'm looking for and i wonder if that characterization is a little bit irritating for you because I've seen it used so many times and I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of expand on that maybe. Well, I, mean, I, think, it's tr- I think it's true. I think that uh, encouraged by my journalist father perhaps and encouraged by my reading, I've always wanted to use the whole scale of the language as right. much as possible. Right. But I also like to use different, different po- poetic kinds which call forth different language. So there's an epistle um mm to the late Peter Porter. Um, there are some that the poem about W.H. Auden is an elaborately shaped stanza repeated mm. again and again mm. and so on. There's, um, yeah, there are there's so ma- many different examples of forms. There's a villanelle too. There's a villanelle, mm. yes. Um, and so on. So um, there was I try to do everything. Yes, that's, yeah. That's it, one one of my aims. That uh, yeah. at the day, I mean, the danger is that you fall on your face quite often. Um, but um, the aim is to uh, be as ambitious and as various as possible. Yeah, I I feel like I, I wonder what you'd say about um, Robert Browning at Bundanon. Is that what it is called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one seemed to me to be a really ambitious run at a form and like highly successful as well um but not being anywhere near as familiar with robert browning as i should be i didn't necessarily know i mean yeah it just it's just such a wonderful poem it's so it's so fun and gentle and so so deeply Australian, obviously, given the, the subject matter. Mm-hmm. But this seems like a tough... It seems like you set yourself a tough assignment. Well, I think I wanted to ce- celebrate the fact that Robert Browning meant a lot to me as a school kid. Mm-hmm. And as a school kid, you like poems that have got a bouncing rhythm. Right. And the Browning poem in question did have a... did have such a, ryth- a rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> 
but it's also uh, it also feeds into various other things about the change of culture about Browning who never came to anywhere like Australia but that did come a lot to southern southern Europe in fact lived a lot in Italy mm-hmm. he wrote the, a poem uh, which was an echo of the uh, Renaissance Italian poet Galuppi oh. a, te- a toccata of Galuppi's hence the reference there mm-hmm. in the um, stanza mm-hmm. and there's a sense late in the poem that I'm interested on on the one hand in what religion has left behind mm. or might might still be going and also uh, historical figures that are regarded as huge, particularly in your child, one's childhood, King Arthur, Joan of Arc and in Australia, Ben Hall, the Bushranger. Right. And But the whole poem then deals with the European tradition, the English tradition, the cultural tradition, but is... Uh, in it, with rhythms from Robert Browning and the uh, dominant uh, theme and subject matter are all Australian. Yes, yeah, it's just wonderful. Mm. Would, could I ask you to read? You could. It's... There's a kookaburra chortling, so I think it's time for tea. That's a cup in bed for you then, and another one for me. We'll have a day devoted to creative enterprise, you exploring with a paintbrush. And after several tries, I could come up with something... Not quite burned out, after all. Might hatch a crafty lyric, handling chaos and man's fall, but locating this among the valley's kangaroos and cows, with a special spot for wombats. Among the lower boughs, fantails are finding insects. Swallows fossick for their food. Business bastards keep insisting profit is the only good. Oh, galuppies out of fashion. Philip Glass is all the go. But any income from our art seems incrementally slow, poet or painter. How the brangus bellow there, wanting hay forked out for breakfast in the dewy atmosphere. Who was it, I wonder, first contrived the electric fence those cattle keep away from? They're not entirely dense. Nor am I, one keeps on hoping, though absurdly out of date, with a weather eye for verse forms, fanciful and intricate. What'll we do with the mystical? A question for us all in an age way past King Arthur, Joan of Arc and bold Ben Hall, when the shadows of religion are like bird calls in the bush and mammon jingles loudest. There's a wattle bird now. Whoosh! Thank you. Plenty of wattle birds in the garden this morning, actually. Yes, I've noticed a few around, mm. and currawongs as well, which has been lovely. Mm. Yeah, this poem, again, it just feels like such an obvious observation about your work that everybody's made, but there's there's an inclusiveness of, yeah, everything from a special spot for wombats <laughs> through to the mystical. Um, and back to Galuppi. And back to Galuppi as yeah. well. And uh, I, I'm thinking too of something else that he said in an interview about poetry being something that you went to in place of the divine so after kind of Mm. realizing that there there wasn't going to be anything there for you poetry was was where you went for that sure Mm. but i had begun to go to poetry already right okay it attracted me and attracted me because the like my father's journalism perhaps the the objects were small and dense Mm. 
and had to be precisely written and uh, had to uh, attract the eye of the reader. Mm. Um, the challenge of that seems like a fascination. Is that fair to say? Just getting mm. it exactly right. Yes, or if not exactly right, vividly right. Vividly right. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, I'm tempted to make a comparison because of this this theme of mm. the inclusivity. I'm tempted to make um, draw a parallel with Whitman, but yeah. I think I read somewhere you described Whitman as floppy, which I thought was such a great <laughs> way to put it because <laughs> he is floppy yeah. <laughs> and yeah, sort of annoying in some ways. Yes, well, he doesn't doesn't do the kind of density that lyric poetry goes for. No. On the other hand, his his ambition, his range, mm. his interests are really broad. Is he a poet that you enjoy reading? Have enjoyed reading? <clears throat> I have enjoyed reading. I haven't opened him for quite a while. Mm. Mm. I just found in a bookshop the other day Creeley's selection of uh, Whitman. All uh, right. And I just grabbed it. I haven't looked at it properly mm. yet, but. Mm. I just thought, what a strange thing, because Creeley is so, I don't know, yeah, dense yes. and concentrated. I thought, That's why right. is he doing a Whitman selection? Yeah. Anyway. Maybe um, letting himself out of jail. Maybe. That <laughs> 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 could be it. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to the book. I'm going on a, a Whitman tangent. There are poems in here with more uh, immediate concerns concerns with Melbourne and with um, particular moments in time um, mm -hmm. and places, other places in Australia as well. And I think one of my favourites, there's a few that I, I would toss up between, but I think one of my favourites is My Sodden Pillow. All right. Which... Uh, page number? Page number 85. Good. Um, and it says here that this is written... In Bruny Island, is that right? Or about Bruny Island? Yes. Um, this poem to me just so perfectly sums up what it is to be in Australia right now. Mm -hmm. You know, in the late 20 teens and to be experiencing the weather as it is occurring. Um, right. And just yeah. the... Hot weather. Mm. Uh, Nut, the Nutcracker Suite on, on, on the radio, mm. Australian birds. But the, also the you've included the extremes mm -hmm. of weather that we're experiencing now, um, the way it'll kind of shift. And, yeah, I just think the descriptions mm. of it are, are so great. And I find, I find it very comforting when I find poetry like this that articulates... I mean, yeah, I say all the time, when you have a discussion about the weather now, you're kind of talking in two registers. You're having a very mundane conversation. That's right. But you're also talking about climate change. Absolutely. Which is Absolutely. a tough way to start a chat. Mm. So, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I'd love it if you would read this one as well. <clears throat> okay, it was, came when I had a residency on Bruny Island. Oh, wow. The Tasmanian coast and um, close by Adventure, a place called Adventure Bay because... Uh, a European boat landed there very, very early in Australia's history. Oh, okay. <clears throat> My sodden pillow, Bruni Island. 
Three scorching days almost over as a wet helicopter drones across on its highway to some nowhere. A sweet of century heat is all a bit much when we haven't yet hit Christmas. But then we do at least hear Nutcracker on a couple of radios around the place and yes, that remains pure genius on the hoof. Speaking of spatial proposition... Sorry, I can fix that. Speaking of spatial prepositions, there's a rainbow lorikeet edging along his comfy branch three feet above my noggin and every bit as leery as usual except that his emerald courts apricot leaves. But here's our cool change, with five wild minutes of rain miming the end of the world. Those lurid birds, by the way, do they shriek, squeal, trill, or just loud whatsoever? They might be needed now, since our pollies have all gone to sleep, whatever the party, all haunted by financial koalas, or just by summer's breath, with sleepy Adventure Bay's inquisitive milk-white wallabies. There were wallabies there of um, ambiguous descent, you know, who'd taken on board genetic changes wow. and were white instead of light brown. Is there another poem of yours that has white wallabies in it? Quite possibly. <laughs> Quite possibly. It's the down. kind of thing I'd be a sucker for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love that poem. Thank you so mm. much. Um, I think miming the end of the world is absolutely amazing. Um, I, li- I like associating poems with big things. And in fact, directly across the page from that, there's another poem that begins with a wonderful quote from D.H. Lawrence. You just walk out of the world and into Australia. I, yeah, I've, I've read that somewhere before and I'm so glad that you included it. I was going to bring it up as well. Right. Yeah, in, in reading about your life and the, the experiences that you've had, um, another theme that I thought was interesting that I think is quite common to a lot of Australian writers and artists is that you went over to Yale yeah, and that was where you felt that you really expanded and discovered and refined your poetic voice and true. I mm. wondered if you could talk about that uh, commonality <clears throat> that Australian <throat> artists seem to have of mm. we sort of need to leave before yeah. we get it that's right. Yeah. Well, Australia remains in its in its strange way part of the new world, mm. uh, because you can trace where most of our cultural shapes, forms, preoccupations have come from, whether whether it be from England or Israel, whether it be from Italy or Germany, they they've nearly all come from up there, or sometimes from from Asia too, and so on. But it. So many things have come from over there and have only settled here in the last 200 years. Mm. Uh, and that's, that raises fascinating questions about almost any phenomenon you talk about. Mm. How here is it? How there is it? Um, what sort of sudden history? I mean, if you talk about history in England, then you, you're talking about generation after generation, mostly. If you're talking about it here, you're talking about, as in my case, my grandparents came here from... Scotland and England Mm -hmm. and there's this huge jump across to the other side of the world Mm. um, when all the seasons are 12 months apart apart from where they are 
in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. So there's that as part of the set of meanings you grow up with in Australia. Yeah, and I suppose also just a refusal um, in some ways to deal with everything prior those 200 years. Yes. Like, I feel as if there's um, perhaps less so now, but probably still in a thousand ways that we can't we can't even realize yet well th- things things come in by helicopter shakespeare lands mozart lands right yeah <laughs> picasso lands etc they come in uh, but they don't they don't come in trailing all of their antecedents or all of mm. their descendants mm. so going to america then what was that how did that clarify things for you and change things for you? Well, very interestingly, because for years I'd wanted to go to Europe. Right. And then I got this Harkness Fellowship to the United States. Mm. So instead of going to Europe, which I had gone to when I was two years old but had no memory of, Mm -hmm. um, going to America meant going from one New World culture to a a slightly older New World culture, Mm. but not, not to Europe or the Middle East. Which is where you really where, wanted where to be. Deep, where all our deep stuff right. seemingly comes from. Mm. So it was very interesting to meet people who felt they were akin to us, but somewhat different. Mm. Um, they partly regarded us as pretty young. They partly regarded us as too like Britain. Um, yeah. And um, it was very nice because my scholarship was for more than 18, at least 18 months. So it was more than just nine nine months or something like that. Yeah, it's amazing. So it was a year, a year and a half jail. Um, can you talk a bit about the poets that you've met there? And yes, certainly a, a lot of them. Uh, but I suppose the most striking one was Robert Lowell, um, right. who I met a few times there and uh, talked to, and so on. Um, John Hollander was on the faculty at Yale, and he an immensely learned and authoritative poet. Um, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of male and female poets. They're not, not all swimming into my head immediately, mm. but, mm-hmm. but I was able, I was there long enough to mix with them and understand more about the American voice, the American rhythms, mm. uh, preoccupations in the United States. Did you feel that you had to defend yourself and make a case for yourself as an Australian poet? Uh, to some extent, but and, and, and to another extent, they were, fasc- they were fascinated mm. by having some, someone coming. You write poetry in, in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah, wow. 18 months is huge. Mm. It meant that I was there for an academic year and then I was still around after their long summer break Mm. for their first semester of the next year. So it meant a much greater degree of familiarity than than most ordinary sabbaticals um, uh, for about eight months, nine months, ten months in the country. Yeah, but this time I was still around like an obstinate object. <laughs> Chris is still here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, wow. That's 
can't believe you met Robert Lowell. That's mm. amazing. Um, let's return back to the book. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about form because you spoke a little bit before about wanting to try everything. Yep. Give yourself... Well, I think I used the word challenge, but... um. Yeah, turn turn your hand to all different kinds of forms. There are there seems to be a fairly consistent pattern of what I'm picking up as iambic tetrameter. Is that is that rice, or am I missing it? And is it a different kind of rhythm? There there does seem to be a a repeated well, in rhythm. Fact, in fact, I've got I've got the book open at my version. Uh, uh, my my b- biblical poem and the cross, right. which is written in uh, ordinary uh, ballad stanzas of four four lines in uh, in iambic um, tetrameter. Right, great. Okay, so I wasn't I wasn't missing something. Um, yeah, that that's quite a long so, one. So it, like it, I'm playing. I'm, it enables me to play with tone for writing about. God, it is all too easy for a mother to think her baby the son of God. But Mary was gathered up in the process, cornered by something extremely odd, a junction in Eastern history, say, or transcendental epiphany. Also the time for visiting Egypt, and so it goes on. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it's as if the form gives you permission, maybe, or something to hang those different those different registers on. That's right. Yeah. And uh, rhyme is keeping them in line from mm. getting too ratty. <laughs> too ratty. Another one that I really, really love, which mm. is, again, going back to that that large and small themes idea, is uh, Melbourne Staccato, which is on page 52. And this is, I mean, you use the word ratty. I wouldn't use <laughs> that word, but it's a lot, it's very free, perhaps the freest poem in the book in terms of its form. Um, That's right. You've got couplets, you've got single line stanzas. I've um, got a bad rhyme in the middle, freak with freak. <laughs> well, it's, I don't know. I mean, it seems fairly intentional. Um, yeah, I really love this one as well. I mean, I love, I love poems about Melbourne. I love the different ways that Melbourne poets describe this city. And in this case, the title the title signals something about the form. Yes. It's, my dreams came to a stop. Must be content with that condition and so on. Mm. Yeah, it's got this very um, punctuated rhythm throughout. Mm-hmm. And refuses to flow. Mm. Yeah, which is definitely... The way that you move through Melbourne definitely feels like that a lot of the time. Birds of peace, eh? Get real. Get real. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I'm staring with huge interest at the bookshelf behind you. Yes. I mean, there are some books on there that I would love to have a look at. You have some Robert Haas there. Right, yes. You have got some John Berryman. I'm just speaking the Americans. (laughs) <laughs> you got the complete I met, I met Berryman. Really? Mm. Tell me about that. Uh, he wore a blue suit. <laughs> Collar and tie and blue suit. Really? A lot of American poets 
back then seemed to address quite formally. Okay. Uh, and he was stiffish in manner, as though his whole body was containing the fire and turbulence yeah, right. of um, what was poetically and imaginatively in his mind. Yeah. Have you read, um, there's a poem by Merwin called Berryman? Yeah, yes, yes, but I, de I don't remember it in detail. No. Oh, I only just found it recently, so mm. it's, it's in my mind, but it ends with this description. It's very funny because mm. Merwin has this line, Something like, he was very old, much older than me. He was in his 30s. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, it's great. And mm. at the end, mm. he says, um, uh, he's quoting Berryman. Because mm. Merwin asks mm. him, how do you ever know if anything you write is any good? Mm. And Berryman says, you can't know. You will never know. If you have to know, don't write. <laughs> That's how the poem ends. Yeah. I met Merwin too. He, really? Yeah, I did. He came from, across from Hawaii to the mainland. He lived lived a lot of time in Hawaii. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. Oh, wow, okay. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. A very courteous man. Mm. That that lines up mm -hmm. with the yeah. poems. <laughs> wow. Just must have been amazing to, to know all those people. Well, well, so many flowed through right. um, universities. For instance, I was, I was twice in America, once at Yale and once at Harvard. Oh, I didn't know that. So, okay, right. Um, was Harvard much later? or? Um, yes. Mm. Okay. And you spent some time in Venice as well. Yes, one, right? year, one year I went to Europe God, and decided why not go to Venice. Yeah, why not? Oh, it's lovely. It was lovely. I and bet. Uh, um, read lots of Italian poetry. Mm. And um, wallowed in the Italian environment, the Mediterranean environment. Mm. Um, the sort of antiquity, the remaining antiquity of the culture around me. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sounds absolutely beautiful. Mm. But it was much much less busy than the times in America, right? And people I met often were Australians or Britishers who were wandering through for a while and mm. been off again. Yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah a lot more relaxing. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, I've kept you for a while, so mm. I don't want to take up too mm. much more of your morning. But is there anything else you'd like to say about the book or another poem you'd like to read to end with? Um. This is a free poem, The Arm Inspection. Great. Page 37. Examine your elbows. They can be useful for getting our jumpers on. Elbows make it possible to play backhand shots or handle your fork and your knife. Elbows are quite different contraptions from simple knee or delicate ankle bone, which have their different caper. Creamy, rococo elbows proffer something decent enough for your portrait painter to put in place between a lady's important face busily thinking away and the gilded frame, at least. But elbows are a bastard when you finally go to bed, making sleep the very devil or dodgy will-o'-the-wisp, bonally giving us all another angle on the sixth day of creation, giving someone a hand, or whatever. Or whatever. Or <laughs> whatever. <laughs>